In our new morning series for the autumn term, we're going to be looking at the book of Exodus together in the morning. And so can I invite you to turn with me? We're going to look, first of all, at the end of Genesis chapter 50, which you'll find on page 57 of your pew Bibles. And then we're going to read right through to the end of Exodus chapter 1. So can you turn with me to Genesis chapter 50? And we're going to read from verse 22. And on your pew Bibles, you'll find that on page 57. Genesis chapter 50, beginning at verse 22. This is the word of the Lord. Joseph stayed in Egypt along with all his father's family. He lived 110 years and saw the third generation of Ephraim's children. Also the children of Machir, son of Manasseh, were placed at birth on Joseph's knees. Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will surely come to your aid and take you up out of this land to the land he promised on oath to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Joseph made the sons of Israel swear an oath and said, God will surely come to your aid, and then you must carry my bones up from this place. So Joseph died at the age of 110, and after they embalmed him, he was placed in a coffin in Egypt. Exodus chapter 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan and Nephalti, Gad, and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died. But the Israelites were fruitful and multiplied greatly and became exceedingly numerous so that the land was filled with them. Then a new king, who did not know about Joseph, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become much too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous, and if war breaks out, will join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor, and they built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with hard labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their hard labor, the Egyptians used them ruthlessly. Then king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and Pua, when you help the Hebrew women in childbirth and observe them on the delivery stool, if it's a boy, kill him. But if it's a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives. And the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. 
Then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every boy that is born you must throw into the Nile. Let every girl live. We end the reading at verse 22, and we thank God for the reading of his living and active word. We're going to join together now in our prayers of intercession, so let's all pray. Father, as we come in prayer this morning, we know that we live in a world that into which has come darkness and sin, and it's destroyed everything. And each and every one of us here this morning feels the effect of it. This morning we remember the families in Cavan grieving the unimaginable loss of the Haw family in such tragic and horrific circumstances. We pray also for the families who are coming to terms with the death of loved ones through accidents on our roads over the past few days. May your comfort be known in the midst of these tragedies, and Father, may the hope of the gospel be heard. Father God, as we're confronted with situations like this, our hearts grieve and our hearts break. And so we want to pray this morning that you will help us to know that you are the one who gives exactly what our hearts are desperately searching for. Not answers, but you give presence, comfort, hope, and life. Father, we thank you today that you are a God who is there, who is always there, and who will always be there. And we praise you today that this is known to those in need within our congregation. Father God, may you sustain those among us who need your healing touch. Make the sick whole. Comfort those who mourn. Uphold all who suffer in body and mind. And may all those in need know the peace and joy of your supporting care. And Father, we pray that your care will be known across this world. And Father, we pray in particular for the country of Syria. Father, it's never far from our thoughts and from our prayers. And Father, it needs the work of your spirit in that land. And so we do pray, may your kingdom come in that place and your will be done. And we pray for our world, for the nations of our world. We lift up our leaders and all here in authority. That as they struggle, as they try and work out what the right thing is to do for the country of Syria and for the refugees have, that have fled that place, that you will give great wisdom, that you will lead, that you will direct, and that, Father, your presence will indeed be known. And in praying for our world, we remember those who are serving as missionaries across this world. And Father, we ask that you would use them to grow your gospel. We want to lift Helen before you. And Father, thank you for her safe journey back to Japan. And may you just continue to be with her as she settles back into life in that place. May she know your sustaining hand and direction for this new spell of service in that place. Father, we thank you today for your word. We thank you that it is your word. 
And it's our prayer that as followers of you, our lives will be shaped and directed by it. And so this morning, we want to pray for our brothers and sisters in the Church of England, that as it faces challenges to the truths of Scripture, that it may remain true and faithful to your word. And Father, as we see other denominations deal with the issues of homosexuality and same-sex attraction, Father, we pray for our response. And Father, we pray that our response will be shaped by your word and seasoned with truth and with grace and with love. Father, as we come this morning, as we see our television screens, as we read in our newspapers, as we hear on the radio, as we look into our own lives and we see death, we see difficult circumstances, we see horrible situations, we see challenges to your word and to who you are, Father, we once again say thank you for your word because our hope is your word. That those who trust you will have their strength renewed and will always know your presence. Our hope is in your word that there's no fear of death because death has been defeated through Christ. Our hope is in your word that you are building your church and nothing will stop it. Our hope is in your word that you are making all things new that one day there will be no more tears, no more death, no more illness or suffering. And so, Father, no matter what's going on in our lives, no matter what's going on in this world, no matter what we are facing or will have to face, Father, we thank you that we can praise you, our God. And we come this morning and we cling to Christ, our hope and our Savior. And it's in his powerful name that we pray. Amen. Good morning. Can I give you a, a moment to look up Exodus chapter 1? You'll find it on page 58 of the Pew Bibles uh, in front of you this morning. So let me just give you a moment to do that. This morning we're going to start with a question, and it's an easy one. What have all the following movies got in common? In 1956, the movie The Ten Commandments, starring Charlton Heston, he won seven Academy Awards for this. Hands up if you've seen it. Any? 1956, showing your age. Lovely. Great. <laughs> Moses, The Lawgiver, in 1974, uh, featuring Burt Lancaster. In 1998, getting more into uh, a younger generation, DreamWorks Studios produced The Prince of Egypt with the voices provided by Michelle Pfeiffer and Ralph Fiennes. And two years ago, from the director of Gladiator, what a classic movie, this boy produced Exodus, Gods and Kings. What have they all got in common? Terrible movies, debatable. Good movies, who knows? But what they have in common, and it's easy, isn't it, is that they're based either loosely or accurately around the narrative of the book that you have open in front of you from the book of Exodus. And today, as we begin this new sermon series in the book of Exodus, it will, for some of us, challenge and reshape, I hope for all of us, our understanding of some of the major stories and events that we know from Sunday school or from our time growing up. And for some of us this morning, this book will make us question things. It may even make you ask, where's God? Why does he allow for such things to happen like we see in this book? But overall, I pray that we'll be encouraged to have a greater understanding and trust in God 
who is the hero of this book. This book will certainly show us more of who he is and what he's like, but it'll also show you how he keeps his promise and the extent to which he does that and how much God does in rescuing a people and making them his own. So let me pray for us as we begin on this journey in Exodus this morning and Hebrews tonight. Father, we pray tonight, we th- today, we thank you, Lord, for your word, and we pray that we will have our eyes lifted to you, Father God, and realize that you are the redeeming, the rescuing God, the one who keeps his prom- promise in all circumstances. Lord, encourage us over these next few weeks and months ahead in this book of Exodus, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So let us begin this journey with firstly a family tree, verses 1 to 6. Do you see it there? We all have a family tree, don't we? A heritage which tells us about our history, stories, good and bad. And verses 1 to 6, as you see them in front of you, are introducing to us a section within a family tree. In the previous book, Genesis, you can read about the family line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and what happened to them and their children. And the book of Exodus begins reminding us of who Jacob's sons were. In fact, Exodus in the Hebrew will start off like this, and these are the names. It's linking us back to Genesis, and it's reminding us of the 12 sons of of Jacob. And these were the sons of Jacob, or Israel as he was often known. And verse 1 says that they went down to Egypt. Do you see it there? They left their homeland of Canaan in times of famine in order to find food, in order to be reunited with their brother Joseph, who was already in Egypt as almost like prime minister. And verse 5 says, do you see it there? It says the whole family numbered the grand total of 70. So it's not a huge number. It's a people who are living in a foreign land. And verse 6 finishes off, do you see it there, by saying Joseph and his brothers and all that generation died. A generation had gone, leaving another generation living and growing up in Egypt, possibly a generation that knew nothing about Canaan, but now Egypt and the lifestyle and all that happened in Egypt was their life. And so these opening verses are like the TV dramas, aren't they? Which before the next episode, they give us a short reminder of what has happened before, previously on, and it takes us back. And that's what these opening verses are doing in Exodus. They are reminding us of who the family is, why they're in Egypt, and how Joseph and his generation have gone now, and it's setting up for what is happening next in the book of Exodus. So let's see what happens next. Do you see verse 7? It says, they were fruitful, multiplied, and filled the earth. The people of God go from being a small minority of 70 in Egypt to being exceedingly fruitful, multiplying greatly, increasing in number. Do you see verse 7? And becoming so numerous that the land was filled with them. This seems all perfectly normal, I think, to us, doesn't it? One can imagine the Irish going to America in small numbers, filling the place and never coming home. And it's the same idea here. This seems normal. But the language and wording of verse 7 are echoes of words that have been spoken before. Fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Where have you heard those words before? In the book of Genesis. You see, back in Genesis, 
where God, before the fall, commanded Adam and Eve the following. He said this to them, and you'll see it on the screen, be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth, and subdue it. After Adam and Eve rebelled against God and after the flood, again, what does God instruct the people? Noah at this time, he said, he blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. This command in Genesis is often referred to as the creation or cultural mandate, where God's purpose was that the humanity he created would grow in number, would multiply and fill the earth so that God's name and glory would be known throughout it. Do you remember the Tower of Babel? Let's stay here. Let's not spread out. Why? Because it was against God's laws. He wanted them to fill the earth. And what we have here in Exodus 1 is God's command and purposes being fulfilled through his people, despite them being in a foreign land. So the people of God are living in Egypt. They've enjoyed a privileged position in this land, all because of Joseph. They're growing and becoming more numerous, all according to God's divine appointment. But that's all about to change, isn't it, in verse 8, as dark clouds roll in over the people of God in Egypt. Verse 8 is a new Pharaoh and a new situation. Look at verse 8 and see what it says. My version says, Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. Your version says he didn't know him. Joseph is dead. That generation is gone. The new Pharaoh, the king, doesn't know the good work Joseph has done. And there is a change in attitude towards these ever-growing Israelites who live in Egypt. Notice the fears of, of the Pharaoh and how he intends to deal with God's people. Verse 9 says he's fearful of their numbers and their, mili- nine and ten, and their military threat. He felt the Israelites were becoming too numerous, and he feared that if the enemies of Egypt were to come, that the Israelites would down tools, down their work, and get with their enemies and overtake them and leave the country. And so Pharaoh deals with them shrewdly, it says, Verse 11, Pharaoh put slave masters over the people and oppressed them with forced labor. And God's people built these magnificent cities of Pithamon and Ramias, brilliant cities for Pharaoh. So slavery, hard labor was the answer for keeping down the people. He created suspicion of the foreigners in their land. They could turn on us, oppressing them, put them back into into back-breaking forced labor that will control them and subdue their spirit and number. And the rest of verses 14 and 15, do you see it there, describes the harsh and violent circumstances and situation that the people were facing. Rootlessness, rootless, occurs twice in those verses to highlight the inhumanity, the bearing down on them. God's people were being treated as slaves. There is much for us to try and grasp from these first couple of verses. The first is this. The Pharaoh is driven by fear and knows how to manipulate the people's perceptions. The foreigners are too many. What if? If they do this, we need to control them. And I can't, I'll go on a limb here, I can't but think that this is the same attitude and sentiment that you hear today when it comes to those who come into the United Kingdom or Ireland. There's too many of them. What if they take our jobs, 
What if they wreck our health service? What if, even though there may be genuine concerns, it's based on fear and it's based on power and deep down, let's call it what it is, it's, it's sin, it's selfishness. Ethnic cleansing is what Pharaoh's up to here. Tell the people, get them suspicious. Gain power here. Secondly, the Pharaoh, willingly or not, is setting himself up against God's people, ultimately against God himself. You see, the Pharaoh here in chapter 1 and throughout the rest of the narrative of Exodus is putting himself up against God, his ways, his promises, and his people. Watch out for it over these next few weeks for how Pharaoh, throughout the book of Exodus, is an anti-God type figure. Exodus will capture Pharaoh versus God, Jewel, all the way through. And we see this already in these verses before you this morning in chapter 1. How so? God commanded his people to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. What's Pharaoh doing? He's seeking to reduce and control and oppress God's people. Pharaoh versus God. God on his covenant promises in Genesis, he promised Abraham, I'll make you into a great nation and you'll be a blessing to the whole earth. Pharaoh is actively working against this. Further, God promised Abraham this, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own. They will be enslaved and mistreated for 400 years, but I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterwards they will come out with great oppression, or with great possession. They would one day, God would release his people from, from Egypt, exit, leave, exodus. The same promise again was spoken not just to Abraham, but to Jacob. Before he even came to Egypt, God promised Jacob the following in, in Genesis 46.1, I am the God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you into a great nation there. I will go down to Egypt with you, and I will surely bring you back again. God promises to bring them out of Egypt, to exit, to exodus, so that they could be brought to the promised land. But do you notice the words of Pharaoh at the very end of verse 10? Have a look at it. That he was going to deal shrewdly with them, and he wouldn't, and he wouldn't allow them to fight against him or leave the country. And later in Exodus 7, we will see that Moses' words to Pharaoh on behalf of God was, let my people go, which the Pharaoh refused and refused. Pharaoh is an anti-God type figure, and his ways and plans are against God. Pharaoh versus God with the creation mandate. Pharaoh versus God in the covenant promises that he made. Pharaoh versus God in the Exodus. You will not leave. God says, I will take you back. But who's going to prevail? Who's going to win this battle? In Exodus chapter 1, we see the first punch being landed in verse 12. Do you see it there? Despite the ruthlessness and forced labor of the Israelites, we're told in verse 12, the more they oppressed the people, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the, or the, Ephesians, or the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. Isn't that amazing? Here he is trying to wipe them out. 
and they just keep growing. They keep increasing, they fill the land to such a point that the Egyptians actually dread them. There's much for us to hold on to and be very excited about, about because the promises and purposes of God always prevail despite anti-God figures and plans and laws. It's amazing. This should encourage us in the time we live that God has made certain promises, covenant promises, and has so many plans and they won't be deterred or unfulfilled. For example, even what we have in Exodus are examples, but in the New Testament, we have a beautiful verse where Jesus said, I'm building my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. God is going to continue growing, strengthening, adding to his church, his people. And despite laws and anti-God, despite regimes that go against God's people, God is going to build himself a people for himself. This biblical truth and principle shows us the futility of going against God, both as an individual and on a collective level. It's stupid to think that you and I can go against God and his ways and word and prevail. But our hearts are deceitful and sinful. And we think we can defeat him. We can have our way. We can't. Thirdly, there's something else to draw from this passage this morning. And we need to get this into our Christian mindset and our hearts and our lives. That God's promises and plans are often achieved through the suffering of God's people. The people of God are suffering bad here in Egypt. You cannot dismiss it. They had gone from being well-loved and well-looked after in Egypt to be now being slaves, ruthlessly driven by their masters. Did they question, why has God allowed this for us to happen? Did they ask, where are you, God? You brought us down here. You promised that we'd be all right. You see, in Exodus, the suffering of God's people doesn't mean that God is not good or loving or in control. And this book will remind us again and again that the suffering of God's people doesn't take from who God is and what he has in plan. In fact, this generation, as you follow it through Exodus, knew God more and more deeply as he revealed himself to them through their suffering and trials. We see through the life of Jesus, the very same, that suffering, and particularly through his death, God was redeeming back a broken and world and people. And the question is with us is, what about your own suffering today? What about your own trials at this moment in time? You and I don't have this wisdom of God. We don't have the breath into history and time like God has. Exodus will show us how huge and mighty and powerful he is. And I pray that as God reveals himself through this book, his word, that it will help you as you suffer, as you go through trials, holding on by your fingernails, that God is good, that he's in control, that he's working out his plans and purposes, even in the tears, the worries, and the heartaches of your life. And just when you think life couldn't get any worse for the Israelites in Egypt, we see from verses 15 to 21, that the Pharaoh calls the midwives in. And these midwives are ordered by the king of Egypt. Do you see it? That when the Hebrew women are in childbirth, if they give birth to a boy, the Hebrew says a son, which makes it more intimate, doesn't it? That they were to kill the boys and leave the girls, the daughters, to live. Here, O Pharaoh is committed to slaughter of baby boys so as to curtail their numbers and their potential to fight. 
Again, Pharaoh is setting himself up as one who is anti-life, anti-God by ordering the slaughter of these babies. But yet again, it is God who ultimately prevails as the giver of life and sustainer. As two midwives, maybe they were the, the bosses of all the midwives in the, in the country, Shipra and Pua, they're named. Imagine that. Years later, these two women are named. What's the name of the Pharaoh? He doesn't have a name. He's not given a name. And it's significant in the passage. These two midwives come in and they're told, when you're helping them in childbirth, kill the boys, leave the girls. But they were told that they feared God, revered him, and didn't do what the king of Egypt had told them to do, and they let the boys live. Wow. God threw the actions of these women who feared him. More than the most powerful man in the ancient world preserved life and these boys from death. Ian Campbell in his commentary says, God will honor those who defend the principle of righteousness, life, and good. Why? Because they're a reflection of God's character. And today there are many of you in this building who can understand the predicament of these midwives. There are those of you in work contexts who face ethical dilemmas continually. There are some of you in family circles, in looking after elderly parents, facing dilemmas of life and treatment. Some in business, education, research are being asked to do certain things, just like this midwives were. Going into the future, you may be asked in your work context, in your family life, to do certain things that put you in the same predicament as these midwives. And what it will call for is acting wisely and biblically about how to respond and act. And at the same time, having a desire to honor and revere God's ways over all else. We probably need to be like Peter who could say, we must obey God rather than men. This is where the midwives were at. These two women, they feared God, yet their actions had consequences. Do you see it in verse 18? They're summoned in by the king of Egypt. And he asks them, why have you done this? And why have you let the boys live? And their answer to the king is verse 19, that the Hebrew women are more hardy in childbirth than the Egyptians. And their babies are born before the midwives arrive. There's a lot of ink <laughs> spilt on these verses of the reply of the women. Are they lying? Are they deceitful? These verses raise huge ethical questions such as, is there any occasion in which lying is allowed? Perhaps to preserve life. I'm not gonna make a judgment today on that. You can do a bit of work on it yourself. Rahab was in the very same situation in Joshua. But what I can point you towards is verses 20 and 21 because it appears that Pharaoh spared their lives. Maybe he took their word for it. Maybe they are hardy. Maybe they do have their babies quicker than our own. And then it says, and God was kind and gracious to the midwives, and he gave them families of their own. They were meant to take babies from families. Instead, God favors and is kind to them, and he gives them their own families. And you know what it says at the end, and the people of God continue to increase and grow. God yet again shows that he's working out his plans and his purposes. And to end this morning, we come to verse 22. Pharaoh, having begun a propaganda campaign of fear towards the Israelites, having enslaved them and brought them low, 
having ordered their baby boys to be killed by the midwives, now in verse 22, puts this order before all the people. Every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every daughter live. Imagine the reaction of the Hebrews as they heard this decree coming out. Imagine the fear. Imagine the pregnant women wondering, what am I going to do if this is a baby boy? What am I going to do when it's born? How am I going to hide it? What am I going to do? I'll have to avoid the midwives. Here is Pharaoh seeking to rid the Hebrews of their boys. And you know what? You can't read this and not think of another ruler, can you? Many, many, many years later, who again, through fear, sought to do the very same thing when he ordered his troops to Bethlehem to kill boys under the age of two. Herod's purpose in those days was to eradicate the Savior, the rescuer, Jesus, who had come to save his people. Did Herod succeed? He killed babies, all right, but he didn't get Jesus. Will Pharaoh succeed through this decree? What's going to happen? How will God's people survive this suffering and all these decrees? How will God act? What will he do? come back next week and find out. Okay, let's pray. Thank you, Father God, that your promises and your ways always prevail, are always being fulfilled, even in the darkest of times and moments. Father God, thank you that your ways are not our ways, your thoughts are not our thoughts, And Father, during times of suffering and trials, help us to hold on to the reality that you are there working out all things for good. Father, we're excited by what we'll learn about you through this book. We thank you this morning that we see that overarching theme, that you will have your way no matter what, that nothing will stand against your kingdom and your promises being fulfilled. Father, help us this morning and over these next few weeks to see more of your character, your way and purposes in this book of Exodus, so that we'll praise your name and glorify in you more and more, we pray. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Amen.